And go ahead and turn to John chapter 20. A little longer passage. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 18. I love the fact that we've been making our way through John for some time now and that we're able to, in the context of our study, look at the resurrection. John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid Him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I I don't know where they have laid Him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Oh, sir, if if you've carried him away, tell me where you have lain him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to Me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to My brothers and say to them, I am ascending to My Father and your Father, to My God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that He had told her these things. Now, Lord, open to us our ears, speak, Sweep away all distractions and let us see Christ. Amen. And so when we ended last time in John 19, there was one thing we knew for sure. Jesus was dead. Stone cold, dead. Pierced in the side, wrapped in burial clothes, piled with spices, stuck in a tomb. He was dead. Now as Mary makes her way to that tomb on this dark Sunday morning before the sun has risen, there is one thing that she knows as well. Jesus, her Lord, is dead. And it has broken her heart. But what Mary does not know and can't even guess at this point is that everything is about to change. Because that was Friday when death came. But now it's Sunday. And life has triumphed over the grave. 
He is risen. risen We're going to look at this passage in three stages this morning. First, I just want you to see Mary, Peter, and John here at the empty tomb. Begins in verse 1 when Mary discovers, in fact, that the tomb is empty and the stone has been tossed aside. Since it was on the first day, that's Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb very early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. You'll notice John only mentions Mary Magdalene. There were other women there according to the other Gospels. Uh, Mark 16 verse 1 says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Him. You know, finish up the burial. It's very common for one or the other Gospel accounts to focus in on a single individual and ignore some of the other people who were there which are mentioned in the other Gospels. That's not a contradiction. It's simply a different way of telling the story. In fact, John does tell us in a little bit that there were others there. If you'll notice at the end of verse 2, when Mary runs to the disciples, she says they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we... Right, We don't know where they have placed Him. But John wants to keep our attention focused on Mary Magdalene herself as the first witness of the resurrection. And so verse 2 tells us that as soon as she sees the stone covering the mouth of the tomb is gone... And by the way, the word John uses here doesn't just mean you know nudged aside a little bit. It, it, it pictures it being lifted and tossed out of the way. Some, some great force has been deployed here. And when she sees that, immediately she suspects foul play, grave robbers, something else like that. And so she, she immediately turns and runs to get the men. Verse 2 says that she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, that would be John, the author of this Gospel, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid Him. Again, just notice the we. Uh, The other women apparently remain near the tomb. Luke tells us, in fact, that they will look in and see two angels there who will tell them Jesus is risen and they'll run off and tell others. But meanwhile, Peter and John race to the tomb to see what's happened. Verse 3, so Peter went out with the other disciple and they were, they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he didn't go in. As soon as Mary tells them, Peter and John begin to run toward the tomb. And the, the language here is very dynamic. It pictures them first running together, but then John, who is the younger of the two, quickly begins to outpace Peter. It'd be like if after church one Sunday we had a race with our three elders. I don't know which of those two would win, but I know for sure who would not. And so they run. John gets there first, and he stops. He hesitates. 
first century tombs were often chambers cut into the limestone um, with, with, uh, of, of a cliff face or, or, the, or the front of an of, of a outcropping of rock. And the door would be very, very low. We often imagine it was you know, like a regular door size, but this would have been a very low door so that you have to stoop to look inside. And so John stoops down and glances inside the tomb. And there in the darkness, it's only a quick look. All he can see are the linen clothes that had been wrapped around Jesus' body. That's it. Then Peter gets there and Peter immediately goes in. He's the first to go into the empty tomb. I mean, there's no hesitation, right? True to form, (laughs) Peter barges right in. Verse 6, Then Simon Peter came, (laughs) following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth which had been around Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Once in the tomb, as his eyes begin to adjust, the scene becomes much more clear. There are the grave clothes of Jesus exactly where they had been uh, just a couple of nights before, undisturbed, um, and yet the body is not there. It's, it's just an empty shell. And then to the side of that, the, the face covering. This would have been a towel-sized cloth, uh, usually tied around the face, uh, in, in order to hold the jaw closed and to give a little dignity uh, to the deceased, right? So it's wrapped around the whole head. But that too is empty. Folded in on itself, which can either mean that it had been folded and laid aside, or it can mean that it's still folded in on itself as it had been when wrapped around his head, except now there is no body there for it to be wrapped around. It's it's as if the body of Jesus has simply passed through the grave clothes, just as we will shortly see him pass through a locked door in verse 19. No, not as a ghost, not merely as a spirit, but some unexplained property of his resurrection body that lets him pass through these material objects. But think about it. Think of how different... This is from the resurrection or really resuscitation of Lazarus in John 11. Lazarus was restored to life, yet he remained in the same old body he'd had before, still subject to decay and death. Jesus even has to command them, unbind him, let him go, take the grave clothes off. They'd be a tattered mass once they did that. But Jesus has a resurrection body. Same body, yes, but but different now in quality, different in character, no longer subject to death and decay, no longer bound in any way. Don't ask me to explain it beyond that. And all that will be clear soon enough. Which brings us into the faith of John. Verse 8, Then the other disciple gets up his courage and goes into the tomb and... As he went in, as John goes in, it says, He saw and believed. So, so when John entered, he sees the same things Peter saw, but something awakens inside of him. He saw and believed. There is, in fact, in the, the narrative here, a progression of seeing as we read along. I mentioned in verse 5 that when John first looked into the tomb, uh, the word used there means it was a glance. Um, That's what the word blepo means. It's just a glance into the tomb. When Peter gets inside the tomb, 
and sees the grave clothes. It's a completely different word, which means to look very carefully. He puzzled over it. He's, he's looking carefully, not quite sure what to make of it. But when John sees here, it's a third word entirely, which means to see with comprehension and understanding. John got it. He didn't get it all yet, but he got enough. Something clicks. John looks and sees Jesus is not here, but the grave clothes are. This is no grave robbery. Christ is alive. I don't know where. I don't know how. But somehow my Lord lives. And you see, that's, that's where faith starts. You look into the empty tomb and you see that Jesus is not there. That's the beginning. Now it's only the beginning. You, you, you need more. That faith needs to be filled in. You need to grow into your understanding further of who Jesus really is. In fact, verse 9 says, as yet, they didn't understand this fully. They didn't understand the Scriptures that He must rise from the dead. And so we got to go to the Scriptures. Experience alone doesn't do it. we got to go to the Scriptures to fill in our faith. Believe and then let Scripture deepen your faith in understanding who it is Christ really is. Now eventually they will understand, of course. They're going to write the New Testament by the inspiration of the Spirit. But here they haven't quite seen that Christ must rise from the dead from Scripture. He must. The word means... No other possibility. (laughs) The grave cannot hold Him. The Old Testament pointed that direction. Probably they had in mind a passage like Isaiah 53.10, which says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him and to put Him to grief when He makes... uh, He makes His soul an offering for guilt. There's the crucifixion and death. And then it says... But he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Well, that's the resurrection. They didn't understand that yet. Or maybe Psalm 16.10 where later in Acts it quotes this as being, though spoken by David, actually true of the Messiah. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. They didn't get that yet. Or maybe Hosea 6.2. After two days He will revive us. On the third day He will raise us up that we may live before Him. That understanding will come to them later. But for now, for now, faith has already begun to awaken in John's heart. Why? Because the tomb is empty. The body is not there. Therefore, Jesus is alive. He is risen. John says, He is risen indeed. Right, you're okay there. Verse 10 then says that the disciples go home. John rejoicing. And Luke 24.12 says, Peter puzzling, amazed, not sure what to do, not sure what to think. But the boys go home. That leaves us alone again with Mary in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Now let's look at her. Mary and the angels in the tomb. In a very real way, Mary is still in the dark, do you see? Verse 11, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look in the tomb. 
And she saw two angels in white sitting there in the body where the body of Jesus had lain, one on the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Mary is weeping. Why? Well, because her Lord is dead. The one who freed her from the clutch of demonic spirits. The one who filled her life with meaning. He's dead. And and that's all she knows at this point. That's all she can think about. He is gone. And now the body is gone. And I can't find Him. And so she's looking for a corpse. That determination to find His dead body consumes everything. It's going to color everything that she sees here at first. Her grief has locked her in unbelief. But then Mary sees the angels. (laughs) As she is weeping, verse 11 says, she stoops down, again the low door, to look into the tomb. What's she looking for? A dead body, (laughs) right? She's looking for a corpse. What does she see? Two angels dressed in white. (laughs) It's interesting, isn't it? I don't know what to do with this. The women earlier saw the angels, Luke tells us. Mary now sees the angels. The men don't get a vision of angels. Angels are ministering spirits sent by God in our need. Apparently, he did not believe they needed that at that time, but he does know Mary needs this. Angels in the tomb. Now, don't imagine these winged beings of medieval paintings. These angels, we're told, looked like men. Mark says, in fact, a young man. Luke says, men. Quite ordinary looking apart from their clothing, which Luke describes as dazzling and Matthew-like lightning. So picture the scene. Two angels seated on the bench, one to the left where Jesus' body had lain, and one to the right. Now stop. Think of that image. Does that image remind you of anything in the Old Testament as you try to picture it? Think of the Ark of the Covenant. Think of that golden bench on top where the mercy of God was given and the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled. They called it the mercy seat. Uh, Luther translated it, I like this better, the throne of grace. Do you remember how it looked? Exodus 25.18 says that there was on top, on either side of the mercy seat, Two cherubim, right? That is, two angels. One on the left and one on the right. I agree with Dr. Richard Phillips. That is more than just a coincidence. John wants us to see this. Phillips says, They were presenting a living image of the Ark of the Covenant. The angels were perched on either side of a slab where Jesus' body had lain as the true sacrifice for sin, uh, sitting one at the head and the other at the feet. Gerhardus Voss comments, placed like the cherubim on the mercy seat, they covered between themselves the spot where the Lord had reposed and flooded it with celestial glory. Dr. Edward Klink goes further and shows, in fact, a number of parallels between the empty tomb as it's described here and the Holy of Holies as it's described in places like Leviticus. Clearly, Christ is being presented as our mercy seat. His blood shed to atone for our sin. His resurrection guaranteeing the promise 
of life. If only Mary had eyes to see that, she would rejoice. This is a place of triumph and joy, not sadness and gloom. But all she can see is death. Remember, she has come here intent on finding a dead body. And listen, sometimes what you're looking for colors everything you see. Have you come here this morning expecting nothing more than dead religion and ceremony? That's all you're going to see. Or are you open to the possibility of a resurrection? Woman, why are you crying? They ask in verse 13. Now on the face of it, that's that's kind of offensive. I mean, you see a woman in a graveyard standing by a tomb weeping? I, I think it should be obvious why she's crying. But then maybe they know something she doesn't. Yes, weeping makes sense when you're at the grave of one whom you love. But if He's alive, if He's risen from the dead with power to conquer death, those tears are now completely out of place. Did the angels just notice Jesus stepping in behind her at this moment and she hasn't seen it? Is there a wry smile creeping across their faces? Unaware that there is more than just death at work here, Mary answers their question with a heartbroken sorrow in verse 13. She says, They've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid Him. Listen, I do not want to minimize her grief in any way at this point. It is as real at that moment as the nails on the cross where she had just seen Him die. But it's got her locked in. She can't even see what's right in front of her even when Jesus Himself steps into the scene. Verse 14 says she she turns around, having said this, and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Do you ever experience that sense of standing somewhere and suddenly realizing someone has stepped into the space behind you and you suddenly are aware and you you wheel around and she does that, she turns around and she sees a man. But again, she does not see that it's Jesus. Why not? Because she cannot see through her grief and her tears. She can't see through the pain. Are some of you like that this morning? Have the disappointments and traumas of life closed your eyes to the wonder and grace that is to be found in the presence of Jesus? I mean, Jesus is right here. She doesn't. She doesn't know it. She can't see it. Grief and loss have blinded her eyes to the joy of His presence. Are you like that? Just going through the motions of worship this morning because your heart is so weighed down with despair and sadness, some pain you've experienced, maybe physical pain, maybe maybe emotional pain. 
some loss of a friend, of a relationship, of hope, some great disappointment. I mean, life just wasn't supposed to turn out this way. And you feel that very deeply. And and so like with Mary, I, I will not minimize that pain at all. Pain is pain. And if you and I were together alone talking about this and, and I knew of your sorrow, I would want, as, as almost anyone in this room would want, I want to wrap my arms around you and cry with you and try to comfort you. Because it is a broken world. It's a world of sorrow and death and pain and disappointment. And there's nothing I or anyone else can say to you sometimes to take that away. But, but here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to understand. Christ is here. And Christ has come into that place of sorrow where you are and that place of grief. He has drawn near to be with you. Psalm 34.18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and He saves the crushed in spirit. He has come to let you see that He's alive. That He has conquered sin and He has conquered death and there is hope and healing and grace and rejoicing available for you in His presence. And oh, that God would give you eyes to see that this morning. Jesus has come to lift the veil of darkness from these grief-stricken eyes, from from your sin-blinded eyes, from your eyes, if you will stop and look to Him by faith. right? Because everything begins to change when the risen Lord draws near. Which brings us then to this third stage. Let's look at Mary and the risen Lord. Verse 14 and 15. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing Him to be the gardener, she said to Him, Sir, if you have carried Him away, tell me where you've laid Him and I will come and take Him away. Still locked in death. Still seeking the corpse of her dead Savior. She has no idea that the dead Savior, she's been seeking, has been raised from the dead, and He's now seeking her. Interesting. Jesus asked the same question the angel had asked her. Woman, why are you weeping? No, there's no crying in baseball. And there's no weeping at resurrections. But she can't see that yet. And so He says... Who are you looking for? As if to say, Mary, open your eyes. It's me. I'm standing right here. But she thinks he's the gardener. Makes sense, by the way, doesn't it? The tomb is in a garden, and from the word used, a really nice one. And it's early in the morning on the first day of the work week and the Jewish week. And so who else would be out here this early? Maybe it's the gardener that came and took the body away and tucked it somewhere. I mean, Jesus had died under the curse of crucifixion like a convicted criminal. Maybe this man thinks it's inappropriate to have his body here. By the way, little side note. 
she's not entirely wrong. In a way, Jesus is the gardener. He is the Creator, right? He's the true owner of every rock and tree and shrub and bush. I mean, He made the Garden of Eden, the first garden where sin and death entered in, and now He's come to this garden with her where sin and death are conquered by His resurrection life. But with her tear-filled eyes, she can't see Him at all. And so she cries out again, In verse 15, Sir, if you have carried him away, please tell me where you've laid him and I'll come and take him away. And then he speaks her name and everything changes. This verse catches me. Jesus said to her, Miriam, Mary, And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. He speaks and faith awakens. Isn't that powerful? He speaks her name, Mary. He knows her. He loves her. He calls her by name. And in the calling of her name, faith awakens. Jesus said in John 10, Twenty-seven. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. She knows His voice. She's heard it before many times just like this and, and instantly she responds with faith. Rabboni, she cries. Rabbi, teacher, master. This is a cry of faith in Him. She is responding to Him. She sees and believes finally that it is Him standing here and that He's alive, that He is here, that He is risen just as He said. Listen, what a picture that is for us of saving faith. One word from His lips has power to open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears. Romans 10.17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. It comes through His Word. As His voice speaks her name, faith is created in her heart. It didn't come from her as something she then gives Him. It came to her from Him. Faith comes by hearing. His Word of grace creates faith in her heart and implants it in her as a gift. This is the gift of God. And so if you're here this morning and you say to me, how can I come to believe that Jesus is the Savior who died and rose again for me, who died for myself? How can I have this faith? I will say to you, hear His Word. Listen to His Gospel message and let Him through that Gospel speak your name and call you into a living faith. Has that? Ever happened to you? Have you heard Jesus speak your name and call you out of darkness to light through faith in His Gospel? Have you heard Him? I don't mean audibly. I've never never heard an audible voice. But oh, I well remember that day when I was 18 years 
of age and out running around with friends doing really stupid things. And Jesus spoke my name through the Gospel. That He brought home to me all those messages I had heard and I had not paid attention to. He spoke effectually and powerfully and faith awakened. The scales fell off and I saw Jesus for the first time for who He really is and fell down and worshipped and proclaimed Him Lord. Has that happened to you? It can happen. Hear Him. But then notice as well the promise Jesus gives her. A promise that actually begins with a warning. Verse 17. Jesus said to her, Don't cling to Me. Apparently she'd grabbed a hold of Him, wouldn't you imagine? For I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to My brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to My Father and your Father to My God. And your God. Don't cling to Me. What a strange thing for Him to say. In fact, when the other women grabbed his feet, he didn't say that. He says it to marry her. And it's puzzled a lot of people here. Why would Jesus say this? Well, folks have come up with all kinds of wacky ideas about why he said this. Crazy things like, well, you know, he hadn't completely materialized yet, so he just didn't want her touching him. Now, that's just silly. No, think about what's happened. She's lost him, and now she's found him again. He's back physically and she's clinging to Him for dear life and she is never going to let go of Him again. Except she must. Right? Because He's leaving soon. He told them this many times. Back in John 16, He said, I'm going back to the Father. I'm going to have to leave you. And when sorrow filled their hearts, He said in verse 7 of John 16, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Helper, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. That day has come. And Mary cannot keep holding on to Jesus' physical presence like this. She is going to have to let Him go because something better is promised. Something else is coming very soon. And she needs to know that and she needs to go tell the disciples about it. When Jesus ascends back to the Father's presence in just a few days, He is going to keep His Word and send the Holy Spirit upon them. And when He does that, she... And they and us will know greater intimacy and joy with Him in His presence with us through the Holy Spirit than we could ever experience if He remained here on earth physically with us. And she doesn't get that yet. But she's going to have to trust that it's true. Richard Phillips again says, Christians today living on the other side of Christ's ascension and the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost enjoy a higher form of communion with Jesus even than the disciples who knew Him in the flesh. We have spiritual communion with the living Savior through the Spirit who now indwells us. And that is glorious. So Mary, don't cling to this body. Something better is about to come. And I'm commissioning you to go tell them. That's the last thing we want to look at. And that is Mary's calling, Mary's commission to go tell the disciples, Jesus is alive. 
Again, verse 17, don't cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers. Say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Notice three very quick things. First, notice that with the resurrection of Christ, the relationship between Christ and His disciples, and that includes us, the relationship has changed. He calls them brothers. Jesus owns these men not just as followers now, but as brothers, as family. In taking on our flesh, Christ became one with us. In rising from the dead, He made us one with Him. We are family now. He's our elder brother. We are His blood-bought siblings. That means that He will never finally abandon us. To all who believed in Him, He gave the power to become sons of God. Second, because of Him, that means our relationship with God has changed. Did you catch that in those wonderful words in verse 17? I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. All that Christ has in God the Father, He now shares with us. Oh yeah, there's still the distinction between Him and us. Don't ever, don't ever, don't ever miss that. His relationship with God the Father is absolutely unique. He is the Son of God by His very nature. We are adopted sons and daughters. But don't miss the point. We are sons and daughters. He shares in God's very deity, but we get to share the blessings of that deity by faith union with Him. And so in Him, listen, we get to call God our God and mean it. And we now pray our Father with confidence because that's what Christ has opened up to us. Finally, look at Mary's commission to proclaim Christ to the disciples. Go tell my brothers all this. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that He had said to her all these things. This is amazing, really. The early church fathers had a nickname for Mary based on this passage. They called her the Apostle to the Apostles. Not meaning at all that she had a place of authority, that she was some pope or prelate or, or, or even a pastor, but that she had been commissioned by Christ Himself to go and tell them what she had seen and heard from Him. And it says in obedience, she went and she, the word means she announced, she proclaimed, she becomes the first gospel proclaimer, the first gospel evangelist to go and carry the good news of Christ's resurrection to others. Which is exactly what you and I are called to do now. Right? We are commissioned 
Look at the end of Matthew. We are commissioned, whether male or female, whether old or young, whether brand new believer or seasoned saint, you and I have been commissioned to go tell what Jesus has done and go share what Jesus has said. If you have seen Jesus by faith, if you know that He is alive, friend, go tell them. If you've heard His Word and believed His Gospel, go Tell them. Carry this good news to others. Let them see your joy that He is alive. Let them know He is risen. Because that changes everything. Lord Jesus, it is amazing to watch this unfold and Just in our journey through John, I love the way John's going to drag this out in a wonderful way so that we're going to see several more first appearances of Jesus to different people. But here we see Christ coming. Why did He choose Mary Magdalene to be the first to hear and the first to proclaim? We have no idea. Lord, we know that in the first century, the testimony of a woman wasn't even valued. They would just dismiss it. The Gospel can't lie to us. It shows us That it's what really happened. That Christ in His mercy and grace chose this woman, formerly a woman of bad reputation, formerly a woman uh, inhabited by demonic spirits, fully a woman with no hope, and now a woman whose hope is pinned to one thing only. She's seen Jesus alive. She's trusted His Word. She knows His love. And she is ready to tell whoever will listen, Christ is alive. Lord, would You awaken that faith in us, just like You did with John, just like You did with Mary. Would You speak the name of your sheep here and let them hear you calling them to faith. Let them see the truth and believe that the, the tomb is empty. Christ is alive. Lord, let our whole lives be staked on that unavoidable fact. And then let us press in to know you, to see you in your word, and trusting you to proclaim you to others for the sake of your kingdom. And our joy we pray. Amen. Amen.